Hey, I am glad that you are here today. I hope you have a Bible with you, and I hope you can find the book of Daniel. If you can't, then look it up in the table of contents and see what page it's on. Uh, if you have your digital Bible, just click over to the book of Daniel. We've been doing a study through Daniel, and this morning we're going to be looking at the writing on the wall in Daniel chapter 5, but we're starting going back and looking at uh, the book of Daniel. And uh, so this is one day in the life of King Belshazzar. We happen to jump into his story on the last day of his life. Historians tell us it's the 16th day of Tishri in the year 539 B.C., which would be October 11th or 12th on our calendar. Uh, but we want to learn about the character of God and lessons that we can apply into our own life. You can go ahead and bring up that one slide. It's just ancient Babylonian picture. Uh, we'll, we'll have that picture up another time later in the PowerPoint. I have some pictures to give you uh, an image of Babylon because when we say Babylon was a big city, it's hard for us to understand it. So historians have recorded some of the dimensions of the city and I've got some pictures in the PowerPoint that'll help you, not yet, uh, that'll help you see it when we get there. So um, just uh, always on the ball. So, all right. Uh, what we're trying to do is learn about the character of God and about God working in our lives. Because Paul wrote to the Romans, he said, all the stuff written in the Old Testament, that was all written for our learning. We can learn from it. So that's the goal of studying parts of the Old Testament, is to learn from it. That's the goal of studying the New Testament too, to draw us closer to the Lord and to to bring us into greater obedience to Him. So we can learn, but it's on this night that we're looking at in Belshazzar's life, it's already too late for him. In all of the scripture record, the entire lifespan of Belshazzar, we have about a three-hour window into his entire life. And that's from when we first meet him till he's dead. It's a short time period. And historians tell us that King Nebuchadnezzar, who was king when we began this book, uh, who led the battle in uh, uh, Jerusalem and brought Daniel and his friends back and then became king, his son, Evil Merodach, reigned, ruled for only two years before he was murdered by his brother-in-law. Nebuchadnezzar reigned till 562, 560 B.C. in that area. And then, uh, then his Son ruled for a bit, and then he was murdered by a brother-in-law who ruled for four years, and then another held the throne for only two months, and uh, finally, uh, I have trouble pronouncing names. Nabonidus, I think is how it goes. He became king, and he reigned for 17 years, and he was apparently married to one of Nebuchadnezzar's daughters because his son was called Nebuchadnezzar's son or a descendant from Nebuchadnezzar. So Belshazzar, uh, the son of Nabonidus, was called also the son of Nebuchadnezzar. And they were ruling together. Dad was in charge of the overall kingdom, but he put his son in charge of the city of Babylon. And Dad was away. Don't know exactly why. There's some conflicting historical accounts. One say he was on vacation. One say he was leading a battle somewhere else. 
One say he'd kind of abdicated the throne and left his son in charge, but left it open so he could come back if he wanted to. Uh, We don't really know. But this we know, that Belshazzar was ruling in Babylon and called the king when this story begins. Uh, He was co-regent with his dad, but referred to as king in Babylon, the city of Babylon. And uh, Cyrus was uh, king of Persia, and he had entered into an alliance with his uncle, who was uh, king in the Medes. And so the nation of Medo-Persia was formed by the merging of these two nations. And we have something just like that in Arizona. Up in the Sholo area, there were two cities called Lakeside and Pine Top, and they merged, and there was one city called Lakeside Pine Top. <laughs> Almost the same thing as the Medes and the Persians. Not quite. Okay. But Cyrus then is, is leading or directing the battle to go against Babylon, and there's a guy named Darius who is the commanding general who becomes the king in Babylon uh, for a time because he's the conquering general, much like uh, Douglas MacArthur was the king in Japan for a short time because he was the conquering general. And if you've read your history books, you know that Douglas MacArthur ruled Japan for a time. He wanted to uh, rule Japan and China and Russia, uh, and he got fired. But uh, the alliance formed by Medo-Persia, they laid siege on Babylon. And when we enter this story, history tells us the Syrian army is surrounding Babylon. But although they were under siege with enemy troops all around, uh, the king of Babylon, Belshazzar, what's he doing? Well, in chapter 5 and verse 1, Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. Belshazzar was convinced that Babylon could not be conquered. So why did he have that confidence? Well, um, here's a map of the the central part of Phoenix. Uh, You wondered why this came up. Well, you know, we're talking about Lakeside Pine Top and Phoenix and Babylon today, okay? Uh, Look, here's uh, this next screen has a, a size of Babylon. See, this is not a little city. If you've ever been over in Europe, which I never have, and, but you go over to Europe and you see some castles and castle walls, and, and they're, the whole castle area usually is not as large as our church property. But Babylon was a different story. It was a massive city, and it had huge walls. Uh, the next screen shows a, a football field. I had to explain that for those of you who don't watch sports. But this is uh, the size of a football field. So it's 100 yards long. How many feet is that, Randy? 300 feet. This is how tall the walls of Babylon were. 300 feet. Look at this blue screen. That's how tall they were. See the width of that? Covering so much of the width of the foot. That's how wide they were. And let's put it in a picture we can see a little better. This is the underpass on I-10 going under Florence Boulevard. The walls of Babylon, the top of the walls, was wider than our freeway. They could race four chariots abreast on top of the wall that was 300 feet high. And so the king is sitting in his 
palace. And he says, hey, the enemy's outside. There's no way they can break through our walls. There's no way they can get over our walls. Let's party. And that's what they did. Now, in verse 1, Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. So when we go back to Belshazzar to demonstrate the confidence and the security that he had, he said, let's throw a party. And he did two things that are very, very unusual for a king uh, at a time of battle. Number one, he had a party. When the kings were at a time of battle, they didn't party. They had meetings and they met with generals and they talked things through and they strategized. Number two, it's kind of funny when you look at this. In, in our culture, it doesn't make... But in look at verse 1. And drank wine in the presence of the thousand. You say, well, yeah, he was a king. He was having a party. He drank wine. No, he drank wine in front of the other people. See, when a king was at a time of battle, he never drank. Because they knew, as we know, that alcohol changes the way the brain works. There's a chemical response in the brain. It's temporary unless you overindulge alcohol, then it's permanent. But it, it affects the brain. And so he knew that. And kings were not supposed to drink. And so he gets all of his lords and all the people together and he drinks wine in front of them as a mockery of the enemy. So, verse 2. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple and which, I'm sorry, from the temple which had been in Jerusalem that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So, we don't have sacred vessels in our area. Possibly the most sacred vessel we would consider are the trays that we use for the Lord's Supper. And so we use those only for the Lord's Supper. You know, if we're having a... Uh, yesterday at lunch, they had hot dogs with chili and cheese. Good, healthy meal. And, uh, but it, it tasted good, right? As long as you don't eat that every day, then you're okay. But we, I just had them pour on the chili on mine. Now, what if they brought out those communion trays and put hot dogs and chili on those and then ate them? We would probably find that offensive. I know I would. That would bother me because that's the communion set. That's kind of the most holy vessels we would have in our church. And... So they had lots of holy vessels in the temple. And it was an offense against God to take that which was designated as sacred for worship and use it in a party. And so Belshazzar wasn't just having a party. He was thumbing his nose at God. He, he was uh, showing disrespect for anything holy. He was profane. And they brought the vessels. Verse 4, they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. Instead of the one God who created gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. 
In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Now, this is the writing on the wall. We get to the writing on the wall. There's a picture in there for that. Um, this isn't exactly how it went. It was probably written in Aramaic. And it writes from right to left, where we read from left to right. So this is put the way we would read it, up on the wall. But he had more than a thousand people plus hundreds of servants in this big party. He was drinking wine in front of them, which was not done in that culture when a king was in battle. He had the sacrilege against the God of heaven. And uh, then this hand shows up. Now, it says part of a hand. And <laughs> I don't know, I was joking with Benjamin this week that maybe it was just the fingers. And so there's four words, and there were four fingers, and they each wrote a word at the same time. Uh, the Bible doesn't say that, okay? <laughs> Benjamin and Megan have to put up with a lot some days at work. But, uh, you know, it's, 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 so this part of a hand showed up. And it probably, you know, I would picture at least this much of a hand showing up. And then it's writing out there. So it's going from right to left, writing in Aramaic. And the reason I think it was written in Aramaic is because Daniel says the words in Aramaic. And so he doesn't say, this is a strange word. He says it as if it's a regular word. So what a lot of historians think, everyone could understand the words, but they didn't understand the meaning. They couldn't put it together. And... So um, this, this hand comes out, and we'll get into the meaning of it when we get Daniel back in the picture, in the picture here this night. So in verse 6, the king's countenance changed. What does that mean? Yeah. What, what does the face look like? What would you picture the face to look like of a guy who's partying and a little drunk? You know, his face is getting kind of puffy, his eyes are a little dilated, and he's just got a goofy smile on his face because they're having a party, right? That's what you would picture. I mean, that's what it looks like on TV until somebody dies and then everybody gets scared, right? I watch cop shows. All right. So the king's countenance changed, and his thoughts troubled him. <laughs> what an understatement. A hand shows up writing on the wall. Now, in this picture, it's a giant hand. The Bible doesn't say it was bigger. It just says it was easily visible because it was where the lamp was. We don't understand their culture because we have lights all over this building. But in their culture, have you ever walked at night with the street lights out there? And you get under one street light, it's pretty bright, but you get away. And then it's a little dark before you get into the light of the next street light. Well, that's how it was in their inside rooms because they had lamps burning around and there was a lot of darkness and then spots of light. And this hand wrote right on the plaster of the wall, right where it was easily visible. And the king's looking right there and the hand is writing on the wall. And it scared him. And rightly so. His thoughts troubled him. The joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. I once sang a solo at camp. Uh, my friends talked me into singing 
and I got up. You were supposed to sing two solos and then be judged, and I made one, and that was it. I said I had to give up because it was bad for my knees. Just bang, 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 bang. I'd show you, but then I wouldn't be able to walk out. Uh, and then he just, oh, his knees are banging together. His hips are shaking. He's, he's instantly sober. Uh, he has been scared so bad. He's instantly sober. And verse 7, he cries aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers. And he says to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing on the wall and tells me what it means, then I will make him third ruler of the kingdom. Why does he say third ruler? Because his dad was first ruler. He was second ruler, king of the city of Babylon. And so he would make the person the third ruler in the kingdom. So he gives him incentive. It's a, a little reverse of the incentive that Nebuchadnezzar would do. Nebuchadnezzar would say, tell me what this means or I kill you. Uh, he says, tell me what it means and I will promote you. So a little different perspective, the stick versus the carrot, right? Uh, and so Belshazzar uh, called them in and in verse 8, none of them could, they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. So when Daniel reads it in Aramaic, Aramaic was a fairly common language there. It's possible this was written in Hebrew or one of the other languages Daniel knew. And so they couldn't exactly read it or understand it because it says specifically they had trouble reading the writing, not just understanding it. And they could not make known the interpretation to the king. So King Belshazzar was greatly troubled. His countenance was changed and his lords were astonished. They were all in shock. And he's really upset now because the wisest people in his kingdom couldn't give him the answer. How many of you have ever heard about government economists? And they give all the wisdom for the government and how the economy is working and will work in the future. Uh, they're about like these guys. They're, they normally can make a guess, but they're astonished. They don't know what to do. The most brilliant people on our planet who do not trust the Lord, do not come to wise conclusions about life, about law, about liberty, about what's appropriate. They come to wrong conclusions because they leave the Creator out of His creation. Or at least they try. But it works just about as well for them as it does for Belshazzar. So the king's all upset. And there's probably a big commotion going on. And People running all over trying to figure out. And then the queen mum, as my niece would say, verse number 10, the queen, Belshazzar's mother, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall and the queen spoke. Why, why would I say it's his mother when it just says queen? Well, because it previously already said his wives and concubines were in the party. So when it references the queen not being at the party, it's not one of his wives, it's the queen mother. And so the queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. Now that seems really polite, like, you know, put on an up, a stiff upper lip or something. Don't act so unkingly. Uh, the world says when people get upset, just don't think about it. 
When God says you need to think deeply, because someday you're going to answer to him. Verse 11, the queen mum says, There's a man in your kingdom in whose, whom is the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, light of, by the way, the new King James says spirit of the holy God. And most other translations, King James and New American Standard, all the other, say they, there is the spirit of the gods, the holy gods. I don't think she was saying, the Holy Spirit of God is in this man. The way it's written is probably this man seems to have the wisdom of the gods or the spirit of the gods. Uh, although I do believe Nebuchadnezzar became a believer. Uh, we talked about that in the last chapter. Not necessarily that his daughter was a believer. Uh, but she recognized something special about Daniel and she had heard the stories her dad would say about Daniel. So there is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king. I think she's really making a point here. You should have known this, Belshazzar. It happened and you should have paid attention. He made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. Verse 12, inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, explaining enigmas, or things, it's actually a literal translation, untying knots, uh, being able to explain things that confuse other people. They were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation. She has confidence in Daniel. She says he has like a, a spirit of the gods, not necessarily the Holy Spirit on him, although we know it was the Holy Spirit. She might not have recognized that. And she emphasizes Nebuchadnezzar perhaps to refute or rebuke Belshazzar because he had disregarded Daniel and what Daniel had shared. And so she has absolute confidence Daniel will be able to resolve this. At this point, Daniel's not a key player in Babylon. It's like he's uh, almost retired or set aside. He, he's, he becomes a key player again after this night. Uh, but he's not at this point. He's disregarded because of all the changeover after Nebuchadnezzar and this person ruling for two years and this for four and this for two months and and now uh, Nabonidus for 17 years. All that transition and now Daniel is is still there, but he's got a back seat. He's not heavily involved in the government at this point. So, uh, verse 13, Daniel was brought in, and he comes before Belshazzar. He's brought in before the king, and the king said, Are you that Daniel who is one of the captives from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? Well, the answer would be yes. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now, the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me that they should read this writing and make known its interpretation, but they could not give the interpretation of the thing. And I have heard you that you can give interpretation and explain enigmas. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be third ruler of the kingdom. 
Now, it's kind of funny that he says, I have heard of you. And he talks it up like, you know, he's known this for years. He hadn't thought of Daniel in years, probably. And he just heard the queen say this. But he's trying to pretend like he's still in the know and knows what's going on. I love the way Daniel answers. Belshazzar had ignored Daniel, and he ignored the lessons Nebuchadnezzar had learned, both from Daniel and from God. And so Daniel rebukes the king. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself, and give your rewards to another. He was going to be third ruler in the kingdom. Daniel said, I don't want any part of this kingdom. I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God. Now he said, I'm going to make known the interpretation. But first, let me preach a little sermon. You ever known people like that? O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. Look down at verse 19. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all people, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. Whomever he wished, he put down. He was the sovereign of that nation. We don't have that in America. I mean, we have a president, we have the Supreme Court. Imagine if someone had the authority of the Senate of Congress, of the Supreme Court, and the presidency all in one person, that's the power Nebuchadnezzar had. And he didn't just have that over his nation, over many nations, because he had been a conqueror. Verse 20, But when his heart was lifted up, his spirit was hardened with pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men. This is describing what happened in chapter 4. He was driven from the sons of men, and his heart was made like the beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys, and they fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men, and God appoints over it whomever he chooses. But you his son or descendant, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. He grew up around this. He was involved in the court. He knew that his grandpa had gone away and come back. Maybe he wasn't alive then, but the story was told and retold. You know, family stories are. They, They get told many times over the years. Verse 23, And you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you. How did Daniel know that? Well, two things here. The Holy Spirit of God speaks into the heart and lives of people. But Daniel also had been in Israel. He had been in Jerusalem. He was one of the princes in in Judah. Uh, and he was... Uh, had gone to the temple and had seen those vessels and he comes in and maybe he sees those very vessels and they were distinctive and he would remember them. 
You and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns always, you have not glorified. Daniel makes it pretty clear. There is one true God. You're not following him. You have rebelled against him for years, and this night you have defied him. So, verse 25. And this is the inscription that was written. Many, many, tekel, you parson. This is the interpretation of each word. Many, it's just a, a, a coin. Uh, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. So what it really, the words say, numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. But Daniel interprets this numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided to mean God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. In fact, God says it twice. Tekel, you have been found, been weighed in the balances and found wanting. He was weighed and was found to be a lightweight. Perez, it's always bothered me that on the wall it says Eupharsin and in his translation it says Perez. It's the same word. It's just Eupharsin is plural and Perez is singular. It's like if we were talking about a mouse or mice. The word changes significantly between singular and plural. On computers, are they mice or mouses? They're, they're mice? Oh, just, okay. I just knew those little critters, but... Uh, so, if we were talking about mouse or mice, then you understand they're singular and plural. So, Perez and Eupharsin are singular, Perez, Eupharsin, plural. So, Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Now, the Medes and the Persians are all, at, at, at least as far as they understand, they're outside the wall. The impenetrable wall. The wall that's so thick they can't get through, so high they can't get over and they know all about the Medes and the Persians. They know about the joining of Cyrus and his uncle to combine the, the combined kingdom of Medo-Persia. And he says, your kingdom have been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a chain of gold around his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler of the kingdom. It's kind of silly. I mean, the proclamation Daniel just gave, uh, a normal king might have wanted Daniel put to death for that. But he, he gives him this promotion, and it means absolutely nothing to Daniel or to Belshazzar, because in verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old, Darius. Now, uh, the pointless... Promotion. Psalm 33 says, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the people of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Historians say that Darius diverted the river that came down through the city, that brought fresh water and, and life into the city, and he diverted the river uh, on the north end, and ran that water out into a lake 
And then when the water level got low enough, his men came in from the north and his men came in from the south and they marched right into the kingdom. And according to historians, Babylon fell without a battle because all of the lords were at the party. And the enemy just marched right in, took over, and Belshazzar was put to death. Proverbs 29.1 says, He who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. That's exactly what happened to Belshazzar. This is one day in the life of Belshazzar. We happen to jump into a story on the last evening of his life. But we want to learn about the character of God. We want lessons that we can apply into our hearts and our lives today. It was too late for Belshazzar, but it's not too late for you. Possibly you have been ignoring the teaching of God through your ancestors, those who've gone before you and the lessons they have learned from God or from the older people in our church. Maybe you've not been listening to those lessons. Maybe you've been profaning God by using things that God calls holy like your body for unholy things. And it's not too late for you. Three lessons we need to remember. Number one, God is watching. God is watching. Proverbs 15.3, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. God sees everything, everywhere, every day. Psalm 139 says that God knows when you sit down, he knows when you stand up. He knows the words that are come out of, going to come out of your mouth before you even say them. He even knows when you're going to get tongue-tied and say the wrong thing. God knows all of that. Isaiah 46 says He knows the end from the beginning and everything in between. God is watching. Secondly, God is weighing. He is weighing. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. God is weighing. He's evaluating your life. In fact, the Bible says God thinks about you and your actions and your motives, motives more than you do. He's evaluating, sifting, seeing. He examines your actions, your motives. Romans 14 says you will stand before God and give account of your life. Matthew 12 said, you will answer for every word that comes out of your mouth. Uh, Ecclesiastes ends with a strict warning from King Solomon. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. God is weighing. I like that whether good or evil, because... There are good things, and we can be encouraged by the good that only God notices and will be rewarded for that. Hebrews 6.10 says, God is not unjust to forget your, la your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. He said, you've done it in the past, and you keep doing it, and God will reward you for that. God is watching and... God is weighing. Thirdly, God is working. He is working. Romans 8.28 says, For we know 
that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. God is working all things together for good if you love Him and follow Him. He is working in your life. He is working through your life. Daniel was blessed because he honored the Lord. Belshazzar was condemned because he did not. God is watching. God is weighing. God is working. So I have a question for you. What would God write on your wall? What would He write on your wall? We're going to sing actually two hymns. One goes right into the other. The first is Whiter Than Snow. We're going to sing a couple of verses of that and then Change My Heart, O God. And before we do that, I want you to look inside your own heart. God is watching. Have you taken that which is holy and used it for unholy purposes? Are you honoring God in your heart and in your life? Have you made a commitment to, to follow God? Are you following through? Are there people in our community that you should be witnessing to? So they can hear the truth of God. Have you been lazy about that? What would God write on your wall? When we sing this, it's actually what we call a time of invitation. We don't call it a benediction. We call it an invitation. It's not the closing of the service. It's your chance to respond to God from His Word, from His Holy Spirit. You respond to the Word and the Holy Spirit's work in your heart. And if there's a decision you need to make, you make that decision. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, please have the courage to step out, walk to the front, and let somebody show you how you can be saved. If you have trusted Christ as your Savior, but there's some area of your life that you haven't dedicated your life to Him, you're not walking in obedience to Him, please correct it. Nobody's going to live perfectly but we have to continually be correcting ourselves back. It's like driving your car down the road. According to policemen, nobody drives perfectly. But in the, as they drive behind you and they watch you, they watch, and if you got too much variation, they pull you over. And they look at your eyes to see if you're on something. So when you're driving down the road, you don't just sit like this and hold the steering wheel because the road moves. There's potholes, there's bumps, there's slight curves. You're constantly making adjustments, and that's how it is in the Christian life. You've got to be going on the right path, on the right road, but you constantly make little adjustments to keep yourself centered on the right road. Are there adjustments you need to make today? When we sing whiter than snow, we're saying that we want the Lord to wash us whiter than snow. And He can, and He wants to. He wants you to be His holy people. So let's let God do His work in our hearts right now.